You can go ahead and take a seat. Uh, my name is Rob Collis, and I'm on our pastoral team. And I think this is the first time I've ever had to share a stage knowingly with another little creature, which is somewhere around here. Don't worry about the, the, the mouse. Um, I was, Richard was leaning over and just whispering in my ear, and I was just thinking, like, is that him, um, all creatures of our God and King? Like, lift up your voice and, and with us sing. I, I don't know that the mouse is going to sing with us, but it's just kind of like, oh, cool, we've got little creatures also here to worship with us today. Um, also, this was not the original text I was intending to preach like a month ago, but Phil changed it on me and gave me this harder text. So thank you, Phil. Um, <laughs> okay, all that said. Um, one of the things, I, I, I don't know how commonly I, I share this, but I'm, I'm a bit of a nerd, if you didn't know. And just to prove it, one of my favorite stories is The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Are there any other? I had a whip, whip. few others, wonderful. Uh, for those of you who, who don't know, uh, the gist of the story is there was once this advanced alien um, pan-dimensional race who wanted to know what the answer to life, the universe, and everything is. And, and to figure out that answer, they created the most advanced computer ever imagined. And they, they called it Deep Thought, which is a really creative name. Uh, they called it Deep Thought, and, and they tasked Deep Thought to tell them the answer, this answer to life, the universe, and everything. And for millions of years, Deep Thought pondered this question. And finally, it, it came up with an answer. And to great fanfare, these advanced pan-dimensional aliens, they gathered around Deep Thought and to learn the answer, the answer to life, the universe, and everything. And just before telling them, Deep Thought warns them and says, I have an answer for you, but you're not going to like it. And they reply, we don't care. We, we need to know. Tell us the answer. Okay, the answer to, to life, the universe, and everything, Deep Thought says, is 42. 42. Suffice to say, that, that didn't really go down very well with these advanced multi-pan-dimensional aliens. And that wasn't the answer they were expecting. It's not the answer they were looking for after mating for millions of years. And so there's some back and forth, and, and Deep Thought says, I told you, you weren't going to like this. And after some more awkward conversation, Deep Thought chimes up and says, you know, it would have been much easier if you had just told me what the actual question was. Uh, a passage today reminds me a lot of this moment in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Now, Jesus doesn't suddenly say that the answer to life, the universe, and everything is 42. That's, that's not what he's saying, clearly. But in our passage, people keep asking Jesus questions. And they don't quite know what their actual question is. And Jesus keeps answering them, but he doesn't really give answers to the questions that they ask him. Instead, it almost feels like they're talking past each other. And, and they keep asking Jesus about the kingdom of God, and, and Jesus keeps answering them, but it's as if he's answering a different question, kind of the question that they should be asking if only they knew what it was that Jesus knew. So today, I'm hoping that we can try to cut through some of the noise and confusion around this, this conversation so we can actually hear what Jesus is saying about the kingdom of God. And to do that, I want to explore three questions. What is the kingdom of God? How do we know when it's coming? And when is it coming? So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. Uh, you can turn them on on your screen and be illumined by the, the glow of the word of God. Uh, or if you can pull out a physical Bible. And if you don't own a Bible too, uh, we've got copies in, in the lobby, uh, at the connection table, they're arranged in a beautiful little pyramid this morning. 
Uh, and if you don't own a Bible, please take one of those with you on your way up today. We'd love for you to have the gift of having a Bible in your life. Um, everything will also be on the screen behind me. Uh, in Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 20, we read, Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Now, I, I want to start with this, this first question. What is the kingdom of God? What does it mean? Uh, Jonathan actually asked uh, a few weeks back, like, can you guys define your terms a bit more when you preach? But here you go, Jonathan, I'm doing this for you. Uh, the kingdom of God is, is this important theme which comes up all throughout the Bible. But I'm not sure about you, but the word kingdom it sort of feels like an old-fashioned word to me. To me, it almost feels like a word that belongs to the world of ancient history or like it exists only in, in fantasy and fiction. And more often than not, in my mind, the kings and queens that get associated with kingdoms, they tended to have behaved badly. And as a result of that, I think sometimes the language of the kingdom of God can feel kind of distant and removed for us today. But also, I think it can sometimes accidentally convey a connotation of over force and the misuse of power. And I, I realize that I can feel that in myself but I'm not convinced that that's what the Bible means when it talks about the kingdom of God. I don't think that the kingdom of God is meant to feel distant and removed for us. And I'm not convinced God wants us to associate the kingdom, his kingdom, with the abuses of power in history and fiction. My, my, my daughter, Gemma, is almost one and a half, and she loves picking up her books to read them. She brings them to, to me and my wife. And, and yesterday morning, she found uh, Taya's Bible, just in, in, on, the, on the table, and she picked it up and, and carried it over to Taya. And Taya was like, oh, look, Gemma, you got my Bible. And just in the, the way that only a toddler ever could, Gemma's like, Bible, Bible. <laughs> Today, I want to know, what does the Bible actually say about the kingdom of God? And to be honest, it, it says a lot. Uh, the kingdom of God is, is a big theme throughout Scripture, and the Bible also says a lot about what it means for God to be king. And I've discovered this week the hard way that there's a lot of really big, thick, heavy books you can go find to learn about the kingdom of God. Um, there's a lot of ink that's been spilled on this topic, and so I, I can't cover all of that. It's impossible. But for our purposes today, I just want to quickly look at two things. First, the kingdom of God has a king. The kingdom of God has a king. And like, well, well, thank you, Captain Obvious. But God's kingdom, it's ruled by God. And God doesn't rule and reign in the same way that political leaders rule and reign. And actually, throughout history, this has been a difficult thing for God's people to grasp and receive. And in uh, the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the ancient Israelites decided that they wanted to be like all the other nations on earth. So they came to Samuel, who was this sort of prophet, judge, leader uh, for the people, and they said to Samuel, in, in uh, chapter 8, verse 5, you are old, which is a great way to begin. You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. They weren't content for God to be their king. They weren't content for God to lead them. They wanted to be like all the other nations on the earth, and they wanted a person to look to, a person to call the shots for them. And as we keep reading, we're told, but when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. I also feel like he might have been a little bit displeased about them saying, like, you are old. 
But this displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. The kingdom of God has a king, and that king is God. But often, God's people have tried to have someone else be king. And the other kings we set up in God's place, they make claims upon our lives, often demanding the very best of what we have while subjugating us to their reign. But the thing is, we were made for God to be our king. We're made for God to be our king, and that's not meant to be an oppressive thing. God doesn't rule and reign the way that people do. His kingship is meant to be a gift and a life-giving, life-fulfilling reality. God is the king of his kingdom. He is the true king of his people, and his kingdom exists wherever he is king. Second, the kingdom of God has a rival kingdom. The kingdom of God has a rival kingdom. And I think this is actually really important for us just to sit with. There's a rival to the kingdom of God. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, uh, there's this curious detail we come across. Uh, we read that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he was tested and tempted in the wilderness. And he went out into the wilderness, and for 40 days, he was tempted by the devil. And in the second temptation, the second time the devil comes to him, there's this curious detail. We read in chapter 4, verse 5, the devil led Jesus up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, wherever you land on the devil and the idea of spiritual beings, there's something happening in this conversation that I think we really need to pay attention to. I think we really need to take this into consideration because the devil says to Jesus, the authority and splendor of the kingdoms of the world belong to me, and I can give it to whoever I want. And Jesus does not contradict him. I think that's actually weirder than the fact that Jesus is talking to the devil. Jesus does not contradict him. He doesn't say, actually, no, you don't. That's what I would expect Jesus to say, right? In Colossians, it says, For in Jesus all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. So Jesus could have said to the devil, No, actually, I made all things. I sustain all things. I hold all things together. And all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's what I expect Jesus to say there. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't dispute the power and the rule of the devil on the earth. He just says, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And it seems like Jesus recognizes that there is some other kingdom afoot in the world. And currently, that rival kingdom has more control over the world than it is meant to have. 
In fact, in Ephesians chapter 6, St. Paul writes, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see, the scriptures tell us that there's the kingdom of God, but also that there's a rival kingdom, which is the kingdom of Satan. And we were made for the kingdom of God. We were made to live in and under the rule and reign of God, to live for God and to live with God. But in the world today, someone else has been pulling the strings. I think we often want to believe that we can have some autonomy and independence in our life, especially when it comes to spiritual matters. And it's like we see ourselves in this sort of neutral space where we can objectively decide to come under God's rule. But that's not really how the scriptures present it. Spiritually, we're not in a neutral space. We were made for the kingdom of God, and the world originally existed as God's kingdom. But somehow, this rival kingdom of Satan has gained a foothold in the world, so much so that the devil boasted to Jesus that he had authority over all the kingdoms of the world. The world which God made was taken over by a hostile force. And spiritually, we live in an occupied state. And the genius of this conqueror is that he's, we've been tricked into believing that this is actually how we are meant to be. Believing that this current state of things is, is true freedom. And that the kingdom of God is what poses a threat to our autonomy and freedom. But we were not made for the world as it is. We were not made for the world as it is under the rival kingdom of Satan. We were made for the world as God intended it to be. The Pharisees asked Jesus, when is the kingdom of God going to come? The coming of the kingdom of God is not a hostile takeover by a conquering force. It's the liberation by our true home. When the kingdom of God comes, it's liberating us from this tyranny. It's the restoration of how things were meant to be because we were made for that kingdom. Of course the Pharisees wanted to know when the kingdom of God would come. And that actually brings us really nicely to this second question. How do we know when it's coming? How do we know when the kingdom of God is coming? In Luke chapter 17, verse 20, again we read, once and being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. The Pharisees want to know, when is the kingdom of God going to come? And so that, that's what they ask, and I think it's actually a pretty fair question to ask. But it feels like Jesus isn't really answering their question, does it? It seems like someone's missing something here in this conversation it almost feels like they're talking past each other and like Jesus is, is answering the wrong question. What's going on? And it seems like the Pharisees, they're asking this question, but they wanted to observe and know when the kingdom of God was coming. And it's almost as though Jesus is saying, hey, no, you're missing it. You're missing it. And Jesus says that this is something that cannot be observed. And the word Jesus uses here, it's, it's an interesting word. He doesn't say that it, it can't be seen. He says that the coming of the kingdom is something that cannot be 
observed. It's almost as though he's saying, in trying to observe when the kingdom of God is coming, actually you're missing it. This word he uses here, it's a technical word. Uh, It's the word paraterasios. And actually, it's the only time it's ever used in the whole Bible. In the Greek, this word has three sort of general meanings to it. And I think this can actually help us to, to see three ways that we can miss the kingdom of God coming to earth. The first is it's a kind of astronomical observation, astronomical in, in air quotes. Uh, Paraterasios is, is what people said when they were observing and mapping the stars and planets. If we're trying to observe the, the big symptoms and signs of the coming of God's kingdom here on earth, we're going to miss it. Sometimes people look for, for these big cosmic signs, like the stars aligning in a certain way or certain blood moons just kind of happening. Don't go down that path. And then they try to assign this sort of weird pseudo-spiritual meaning and significance to all these, these cosmic natural occurrences. And if we try to observe cosmic pseudo-spiritual events to predict the coming of the kingdom of God, we're missing the kingdom of God. That's the first way we can miss the kingdom, seeking cosmic signs of spiritual and and pseudo-spiritual significance. The second is a kind of scientific observation, again in, in quotations. And this is what people would say when they were looking for symptoms of a medical condition. And in this sense, we miss observing the kingdom of God when we're holding the the indicators of the kingdom of God to conform to our preconceived notions of how the world is meant to work. That was a big sentence. It's when we say, this is what it would look like for God to show up in this world and in my life. And we've kind of created this sort of checklist of things that God needs to do. A set of conditions based on our own thoughts and ideas and not actually tested against what God's actually said in Scripture. That can mean requiring God to conform to our our philosophy of how the world is supposed to work. Or it can mean requiring God to conform to our own ideas of what justice and mercy looks like. And then requiring God to to check off each and every single one of those boxes. The the second way we can miss the kingdom of God is looking for, for these symptoms that we've listed and just checking off the list of all the different ways that we expect them to show up. And the third way is through observance of religious rule-keeping. And this one's, this one's a little bit different. But people used this word, this term, to talk about observing the many rules and components of keeping Jewish law. You see, this, this is a very religious sort of observing here. But when we try to make our experience of God and his kingdom all about how well we keep the moral rules and trying to then earn our way into God's kingdom, the reality is we end up missing it. And no one was better at trying to do this than the Pharisees. They had following the Jewish law down to an art. But Jesus stood before them. He stood before them and told them that they were missing the kingdom of God because it was before their very eyes and they couldn't see it. When we're trying to observe the coming of the kingdom of God, whether we're seeking cosmic signs of spiritual significance or, or checking off a list of all the different ways that we expect God to show up, or even trying to earn and attain the kingdom of God through our own moral and spiritual strivings. If we're trying to observe the coming of the kingdom of God, we will miss it. We will miss it, Jesus says. But why? 
why are they missing the kingdom? Jesus says to them, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. And as we keep reading, Jesus says to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or, or here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. You see what Jesus just did there? He said, people will say, here is the kingdom of God, there is the kingdom of God, here is the Son of Man, there is the Son of Man. And he says that they will long for the days of the Son of Man. You see, Jesus is equating the kingdom of God with the Son of Man and the days of the Son of Man, and he's saying these things are the same. And he's saying that the kingdom of God, it's not a what, it's a who. This is just like what Daniel actually says in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 7, we read, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The kingdom is not a what. The kingdom of God is not a what. The kingdom of God is a who. It's the reign of Jesus Christ. It's when Jesus is king. They can't observe the coming of the kingdom of God because they're looking for something different. But God's kingdom is coming in the form of a person. God's, libera God's liberating act of redeeming the world and reclaiming the world, restoring the world where it's meant to be, God's doing that through the person of Jesus Christ. And this brings us, I think, to our final question. When is the kingdom of God coming? When is it coming? That doesn't sound like a, a difficult question to ask, but it turns out it's a bit of a complicated question to answer. And then Jesus has this kind of long, complicated answer to give us, too, which feels really strange. And he says in verse 24, For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first you must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to that day. Noah entered the ark, and then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this in the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken, the other left. Where, Lord? The disciples asked. Which, of everything, that's not the question I would be asking, <laughs> right? Seems like they're asking, like, where will they be taken? 
But Jesus doesn't answer their question. Again, he doesn't answer their question. He says, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. And we're just like, wait, what? What? Let's come back to this question. When is the kingdom of God coming? Well, there's sort of two different answers in this text. Earlier in in verse 21, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is in your midst. And then in verse 24, Jesus says, for the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And it sounds like Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's here now. And also, the kingdom of God is still yet to come. It's it's here now, and it's coming in the future. Now, but not yet. The kingdom of God is here now. Jesus was standing among the Pharisees and the disciples, and he was saying to them, I am here among you. I, the Son of Man, am here with you to free you from the kingdom of Satan, to liberate you from sin and death, and to raise you to the fullness of life in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is now. And it's also not yet. Jesus indicates that there's something that still needs to happen. First, he says, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus has to suffer and die and go to the cross. He had to go to the cross to free us from the curse of sin and to liberate us from the kingdom of Satan. And he did that. He did that because of the immense love that Jesus has for you. He died to set you free. He died so that you and I could be freed to experience the kingdom of God. To experience the kingdom of God and to know and experience Jesus and his immense love for you. Because where Jesus is, there is his kingdom. And Jesus is the king. And we were made to know him, to walk with him, to experience the fullness of life which comes from being with Jesus. The kingdom of God is now, and we can live in the kingdom now, because Jesus has inaugurated his kingdom here on the earth. And he's liberating us from the power of the kingdom of Satan. He's liberating us from the power of sin. But the kingdom is also not fully here yet. There's a not yetness to this, too. Jesus says, For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. You see, there's going to be a day when Jesus comes a second time. And it seems that it's going to be a bit more obvious than when he came the first time. Jesus gave all those, all those weird details about Noah and Lot and, and about people disappearing. And if we're not careful, we could get bogged down in some of those details there. I think many people do. But the point is that Jesus is going to come back a second time. He's going to come back. And life is going to seem pretty normal right before he comes back. People are going to be living their lives. Eating, drinking, going to work, coming home, planning for the future. And in that mix of the normal, everyday of life, Jesus will come back. And he will return in a way which is undeniable and impossible to miss. And everyone will know that it's him. There will be no doubt. 
And he's not interested in telling us how exactly everything is going to go down. That's not what he's here to do. The point is that he's coming again. And he's going to finish what he began on the cross and what he proved by his resurrection. He's going to reveal himself to be the true king. He's going to vanquish once for all that kingdom of Satan. He's going to reign over all the earth, over the whole world. And his kingdom will have no end. Friends, that is good news. Between now and then, we find that we're left with, with a different question hanging over our heads. All this time, people have been asking Jesus questions. And he's been giving answers to the questions he would have asked if only we knew what he knew. But the question this passage raises for us, which I think we need to sit with, it's this. Whose kingdom are we living in? Whose kingdom are we living in? Who is reigning over your life? If Jesus is our king, then with confidence and joy, we can say that we belong to the kingdom of God. But if Jesus is not our king, if our lives are actually lived under the rule and authority of someone or something else, then we may need to grapple with whether we might currently be dwelling in a rival kingdom. And if that's the case, what's keeping us from missing, from observing God's kingdom? Jesus says, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. Whatever loses their life for my sake will preserve it. Which kingdom are we living in? Friends, the kingdom of God is here. It's here now. And we were made for that kingdom. Jesus has come to free you from the kingdom of Satan so that you may live in the kingdom of God. And Christ has died, and he has risen, and he will come again. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and to establish his kingdom now and for all of eternity. The question is, will you be there? Because you can be. You can be there, and he wants you to be there. Will you pray with me?